Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and super excited because we have the amazing Lisa Bevere as our guest this week. Lisa travels the world sharing the hope and truth of Jesus. She and her husband, John, founded Messengers International in 1990, and over the past 25-plus years, millions of lives have been transformed through their ministry. Along with her preaching and teaching, Lisa has authored several best-selling books, including her latest entitled Without Rival. And Lisa has actually made the first two chapters of Without Rival available to you for free. You can just go to withoutrival.com and you can download them there. So on this week's episode, Lisa shares why she believes that God does not love everyone equally and why that is okay. She makes some fascinating points that I'm sure you'll, you'll definitely appreciate. We also talk about the important balance of leading with grace, but not at the expense of truth, and how as ministry leaders, we can overcome the trap of comparing our ministries to others. So I invite you to join me in my conversation with Lisa Bevere. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. We're super excited to have you with us. Hey, Jason, I'm thrilled. Awesome. Well, Lisa, first I want to say uh, congratulations to you because your most recent book, Without Rival, has become a New York Times bestseller. That's just awesome, sister. Congratulations. Thank you. Listen, I, nobody was more shocked than I was. <laughs> no, I get that. And as a pastor or as a father of, of six children, actually, four four daughters— as I was reading through through your book and, and doing some research on it, I tell you, I was very, very encouraged and inspired. It seems like a very timely book, super powerful insights throughout. And among many of those in your book, you share that our culture is filled with competing and comparison. And that's just been a part of, of what our culture is all about. And you set up what I feel is an eye-opening contrast you talk about the fact that we often get caught up in this this comparing and competing over things that do not really matter rather than boldly seeking our unique identity in Christ. Can you share a bit about that kind of misplaced rivalry that we that we see in our lives? Well, and you know, and first and foremost, you know, I, I want to say, you know, comparison has a pull to it. And I think that that whole of comparison and competition isn't always a bad thing. I think we actually know we were created for something more. And so when we see somebody else having more, we're like, wait a minute, did that get deducted out of my account? Did they just take that from me? We don't understand that the person that is going to actually create that something more in us is our connection with our creator. And so, you know, Jason, how I kind of set this up is, I had traveled to South Korea with my husband, and there are people that do jet lag well. I am not one of them. And I had to finish a manuscript, and I fell asleep at my laptop. I know that because I woke up eight pages later of the letter T, and I was like, you know what? You're getting nothing done. <laughs> and I went to lay down, and I heard, I heard, I do not love my children equally. And Jason, I have to be honest with you, I sat up in my bed, I thought, did I bring home a spirit of blasphemy from South Korea? God, you have to love us all the same. If you don't love us all the same, that's not fair. And I heard, 
same implies that one of you are replaceable. Equal implies that my love can be measured. He said, I don't love my children equally. I love them uniquely. And I love words. So God knew that as soon as I heard that word unique, I would pop off my bed, I would run into my husband's office, which I wasn't supposed to be in, and I would look up that word unique. And that was a three-tier definition. First is soul representative of. See, there is no one who has ever been created like you, Jason, like me, Lisa. Nobody has ever been created like us to represent God to this earth. We have a unique mandate on our lives, what God does through us, what God does you know, through us to other people, how he loves us is a unique declaration of who he is. We're the sole representative of that. Prototype was the second tier definition. I'm the beginning and the end of me. There is nobody else. I'm not scheduled for mass production. But the third one was what really hit me was without rival that there is no competition for my place at the table. There is nobody who can take my place in the heart of God. And, you know, Jason, it stands to reason that you and I serve a God who is without rival. Therefore, his sons and daughters should be without rival. And yet rivalries are robbing the body of Christ of creativity and the originality that God has for us. I love that you are a father of six. Uh, you were never a crazy pregnant woman like me, but I bet you might have had some of these same feelings. You know, when I, when I had my first son, I was like, I want 20. I was so in love with my firstborn, Addison. I said, I, I, I want 20 of these. And then I got pregnant with my second son. And at the end of my pregnancy, I began to panic. I began to think, wait a minute, what was I thinking? I love Addison so much, and now I'm going to have this other child. I'm going to have to cut the love I have for Addison in half and share it with this stranger baby that looks scary in the sonograms. I don't know how I feel about that, (laughs) but that's not what happens. When we have that second child, a whole new portion of our heart opens up, and the things that I love about Addison, my firstborn, are very different than the things I love about Austin, my secondborn. You have six. It's not that each child gets one-sixth of your love for them. You have a unique love relationship with each of your children. Right. It can't be quantified. You, you can't say, well, I love this one more. You'd be like, I love this one more in this area, and this one more in this area, and this one. And that is how God looks at us. And so I wanted to, when I wrote Without Rival, I wanted to, to kind of, as a Sicilian grandmother, say, wait, I'm seeing a generation being robbed because of rivalries. I'm seeing myself being robbed because of rivalries. And um, I was sharing with you earlier on how I got to travel and be in front of tens of thousands of young people over the last year. And all of them, when I would get done preaching, Jason, they would come up to me and they'd almost be shaking. And they would say, I know that God has his hand on my life for something significant, but I have no idea what that is. And I would look at them and say, that is because you are called to do something that has not been done before. Mm-hmm. And you will never discover the not been done before by looking at what has been done by others. You only discover that in the presence of God when we get in this word and we let his word refacet us when we lift our eyes and say, all right, God, I believe that you said in the last days you would pour out your spirit on all flesh and sons and daughters, old and young, and visions and dreams. I do not want to draw off the limits of this earth. I want to draw off the promises of heaven. That's powerful. That's awesome. Now, you've 
You've often said that uh, too many people settle for less than God has for them, and that sounds like you know, what you're saying in this idea of understanding that we are without rival, we're uniquely created, we find our identity in Christ. Um, how is it that you see people are kind of settling um, for something less than God's best? Well, I love C.S. Lewis's quote. It said, this is again from The Weight of Glory, it says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And when I see that, it just takes my breath away. And we're not talking about stuff, because that's in that sex, drink, ambition thing. We're talking about... God has a promise of reward, that legacy. Like for me, coming from a totally heathen background, saying I'm not positioned for anything of promise. We have all the wrong elements in play when it comes to what happens with me, you know, as far as my natural legacy. But when I was born again, I got a new legacy. It is no longer about the family I'm from. It's about the family I am building. And so I had to look into God's Word, which is my mirror, to find out what He would have for me and for my children. I love how God chose Abraham for one reason. You know, if, you, if I, and I love to torture audiences. I love to say, why did God choose Abraham? Because I know none of them are going to be able to answer me. <laughs> they always say, because he lived by faith. And I'm like, no! You know, you know, and it you know, wasn't because he had kids. He had none. It wasn't because... You know, he had a great legacy. He was the son of an idol maker. You know, why did he choose him? It said in Genesis 18, 19, that God settled on Abraham because he knew that Abraham would teach his children God's ways. And so when we have this unblushing promise of reward, which in my biggest scheme of life, yay, my book is a New York Times bestseller. I'm happier about my sons. That means, means more to me that my, all four of my sons love God and serve Him with a passion. That means more to me than anything that anybody in this world can stamp on me or I can put on my Instagram. I want legacy and family. And so I don't want just one generation. I want a generation of generations. And so I think that we need to say there's, there is a reward of legacy. And so for me, we're looking at Sarah and Abraham and seeing how Sarah had taken herself out of the conversation. I mean, here's angels showing up at a tent. Sarah is hiding behind the flap, listening in. If angels showed up at my house, John would have to push me out of the room. The angels would have to be like, Lisa, leave. I would not only be present, I would have Skyped in everybody. I would have FaceTimed everybody. We would all be front and center. But I feel like Sarah had taken herself outside of this conversation because she had made some big mistakes. And I think a lot of people are settling for what they can provide in their own strength and settling for what they think they deserve. Sarah had made mistakes. So she said, I don't deserve, you know, I, I had a bad idea to raise up Ishmael. It's not working out okay for me. But God's promises do not fail. And they are not based on my ability. They're based on his faithfulness. And so I, I really wanted a generation to say just, you know, to say to them, hey, just because you've made a mistake doesn't make you a mistake. 
And if you think that, you're mistaken. Look at Sarah. Look at Abraham. I mean, even right after that, he tries to put her in the harem of Abimelech, and God has to get involved. So I really believe that we need to say, hey, God, if you need to change my name, change my name. Because when God begins to change your name, he begins to change your nature. And when we say it's not about me, it's about you, I, I love how you know the message unpacks this whole dynamic about how Abraham gave God permission to do something with his nothing. And I think that's where we need to settle. We, we cannot be limited by our nothing. We need to say, God, whatever you want in my life, I embrace all of that for myself. That's powerful. So it really, really seems to go back to this idea of understanding our identity in Christ. Um, because we tend to settle for less because we're caught up in our own baggage, um, when the reality is we are new creations in Christ. And as new creations in Christ, then you know, God's best is wide open for us, and, and we should feel compelled to step into that, understanding God's unique love, as you said, for, for each of us, right? Right. And, and I love that you have four daughters. You know, here, here's the thing. I got born again at 21 years of age, and somehow I managed to cram a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of shame, a whole lot of debauchery into my last decade of my life before I got saved. And so, you know, when I came into the church and I heard things like women are easily deceived, last to be saved, you know, first to sin, you know, last to be created, first to sin. You know, I heard these things. I thought, yeah, that's probably true, because I could look at my life and I could see where I had been deceived. I could see where I had been gullible. Where I could see where I had made poor choices. And so, you know, I let that attach itself to my gender. And, you know, it was kind of like just a little label, like, you know, you're in a meeting, you sit on a chair, and then the label's stuck on the backside of you. It's not something you always see, but it kind of always follows you. And so I had that label of unqualified, gullible, easily deceived female. And and then I had four sons, and I was like, yay, I had all boys. This is going to be great. But then, Jason, God started putting me into this world of women, and I started having spiritual daughters. And then I started having granddaughters. And then I realized, wait a minute, if somebody told my granddaughter that she was gullible, that she was easily deceived, that she was the last to be created and the first to sin, I would come flying over my kitchen counter and I would tackle that person to the ground. I would not allow those things to be spoken over my granddaughter or even my spiritual daughters. And God said, well, Lisa, if you're not going to let those things be spoken over them, then you no longer can allow those things to be spoken over you. Because yes, yes, women have been deceived, but so have men. Yes, women can be gullible, but so can men. You know, women were the last to be created, but there is some theological discrepancy about whether they were the first to sin. A lot of New Testament would say that through one man's sin, and that would be Adam's. You know, and so, you know, yes, it, but it doesn't matter. The redemption was both male and female. It was in all in Christ. And so, you know, I had to say, all right, God, if you call me redeemed, if you say that the Holy Spirit will give me wisdom and counsel, if you say your word will rightly divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, deception and truth, then so be it in my life. I'm not going to discount myself because of my gender. I'm going to qualify myself because of my Christ. Mm, that's, that's good. And uh, as you, you write in your book, and, and you touch on this, this aspect of gender rivalry, 
You know, you you yeah. kind of set that dichotomy of um, gender pride versus gender envy. You know, uh, male versus female, and those Absolutely. types of things. So, can you unpack that a little bit more in regard to what you see in our world today in regard to this gender rivalry? Well, first and foremost, God doesn't love men more and women less, and He doesn't love it women more and men less. He loves both men and women uniquely. And he entrusts both men and women with unique strengths for his glory. And so it's, it's wrong to listen to, and, and I, you know, I hope this is an overgeneralization, but it's wrong for women to imagine that they'd be more powerful as a man. You know, if they think, oh, if I could just be like a man, I'd be more powerful. And, and I think that feminists have told us for a long time, if you want to be powerful as a woman, act like a man. But that's not God, who God created me to be. He did not create me to act like a man. He created me with all of the unique challenges of gender to lean into him and find out what was powerful about being a woman. And so I am my most powerful expression when I am the gender God created me to be. And, you know, and I, I have to tell you, Jason, I was way ahead of my time. When my husband asked me to marry him, I said to him, you have no idea what kind of package you're getting. And I was like, you're getting a bonus. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, I have a woman's body and a man's brain. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually not comfortable with that. I was like, well, I am that. And uh, I get along better with men than women. I don't really like women. Women are petty. Women are small-minded. They gossip. And then I found out that's not how God looked at women. Mm. That is how women are and behave when they can't get the right power the right way from the right source. That's how they look when they're like, oh my gosh, there's only six seats at the table. I'm going to have to sabotage my sisters to try to get in there. But I feel like there's a whole new generation of women who are saying, let's set another table. Let's stop trying to push in on the, you know, on this table. Let's set a table and, and let's be a generation of mothers instead of mentors. And I know this sounds like maybe I'm splitting hairs, but the truth is, as a mother, I want more for my sons and my daughters than I ever had for myself. As a mentor, I'm going to reproduce myself. We need a generation that's actually going to get up under the last generation and say, I want something more for you. And I would say a lot of this gender confusion is people trying to heal something uh, with untempered mortar. You know, you can, the truth is, only God can go into the deepest places of our soul and heal something. And I had brokenness because of my relationship with my mom. My brother had brokenness because the relationship with his, with my dad. And, and we pressed in to God and we got healing with that. Doesn't mean there's not challenges, but it draws us closer to God. You know, and, and my husband laughs and he hates it when I say this, but it is funny. I said, it would be so much easier for me to be married to a woman than, than a man. <laughs> it would just be so much easier. That wouldn't be a brave choice. That would be an easy choice. But the truth is, my husband is the iron that sharpens my iron. He is the catalyst for my remaking. When I come home and go, so-and-so is mean about this, or I wasn't on this list, or this is it. He's like, you need to read your Bible. You know, he's not going to say, hey, I feel sorry for you. He's going to be like, Lisa, I expect more from you. He, he, has a, he has a perspective I don't have, and the truth is I do the same thing for him. Right. And so, you know, genders have different strengths. It doesn't mean a man can't be nurturing. 
It doesn't mean a woman can't be ambitious or strong. And, and I don't think either of those things are wrong things. I'm a very fight for people person, a very strong for other. My husband is a very alpha male, but God bless him. He's married to a half Sicilian woman. So, <laughs> so there is, there is definitely passion and I am an advocate for women, but I do not feel that you should ever add value to one gender by detracting it from the other. So men shouldn't feel value by diminishing the assignment of God on women, and women shouldn't feel value by mocking men. And right now we have a culture that mocks the men and, and sexualizes the women, and we need to deal with this and call it what it is. It is anti-female. It is anti-the bride of Christ. And, and we need to just deal with this. That, hey, this is the truth. Women are being usurped in your position. So it's it's... It's not, it's not good. Uh, God created woman as the answer to the very first problem, and that very first problem was it is not good for man to be alone. And so we cannot act like men or we leave them alone again. We need to find out what it is to be a woman. And so, you know, for this whole gender without rival, I, I really want it not, not to go into the, can they be elders or not elders? Can they be deacons or not deacons? Can they be pastors? You know, forget all that. What I wanted to say was, hey, the Great Commission was your permission. Whatever God has put in your life and heart to do, you got to do it. You've got to do it, whether that is be a medical missionary, whether that is to be just a, a doctor here in the States, whether that is to be a state senator. But I hate it that the church is shutting down the gifts of the daughters because then they go out because they know that God's hand is on them. They go out and either the world benefits from all of what's on their life or they get mad. You know, I, I don't know if you follow social media. I, I tend to post and go, Jason, just because I get annoyed. <laughs> but, but recently I saw this whole Twitter thing where it was hashtag things only Christian women hear. And it was all the stupid things that we hear as Christian women. And yes, do we all hear them? Yes. Had I heard them last week? Yes. Is that adding any value to the conversation? Absolutely not. We need to have the right people around the table having the right conversations. You know, to quote the Godfather, you do not tell anyone outside of the family what you're thinking. But the family needs to have some conversations when it comes to gender. And I think, you know, I would challenge the people that listen to you to have the conversations. Like, you know, what, would, our, would our church be healthier if it had the voice of a mother in addition to a father? How can we not just give women permission, but give them position in our church? Because there's a lot of churches that say, we believe in women. You know, we believe in women ministering. But that means one time a year we have someone on the platform. You know, is, is that the healthiest expression? Maybe it is. I mean, but their conversations need to happen. How do we train our women? You know, you and I both go to the same church, and I know this has been an ongoing conversation at New Life of, you know, finding out how do, we, how do we build up our women? How do we train them? How do we qualify them? Where are they, you know, where are they the most needed in our body to bring health and strength? Some would say that the world is doing a better job at gender equality than the church is doing. How would you respond to that? You know, I I would say that's possibly true, or probably true, but around the wrong things. I would say, and this is where I'm at, it is so easy to point out what is wrong with the Church. Mm-hmm. It is hard to figure out what is right. And so I think it doesn't take any discernment to say, well, the Church needs to involve the women more, the Church needs to do this more, this more, this more, this more. 
it's so easy to criticize, but it is harder to construct. And so I think rather than criticize what is, we should speak what could be. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of being at SEU um, earlier this year, and I'm actually going to be part of their women's leadership stream because they, they were having these conversations. And, you know, and I, I told the young people, I said, you guys are destined to be heroes, and you know it. You know it. But you have settled for being critics instead of prophets. And I said, you know, and again, I'm not being weird when I say prophets. I'm saying I need somebody who can look in the face of glaring problems and see the answers on the other side of it. Right. Never have you had more information. Never have you had more connection. Never have you had more opportunities to hear the most brilliant sermons on the face of the earth. And yet, and yet, you're experts in what is wrong and not as what in what is right. And I had just, bless her heart, I had just come from a trip to, from Iraq and Vietnam and, you know, some other places, and I came back and I said, I love that you guys care about the refugee situation, but it would seem that you are passionate about what you feel like this administration isn't doing for the refugees, but you don't seem to care about the homeless people on the streets of Tampa. Wow. And I said, so it feels like you are more impassioned about what everybody else isn't doing than what you could actually do. And I think that's the perspective we have to change. So I can say, I don't think it's right. Women need to have equal time or, or whatever, but, but that's not going to solve anything. I think we need to say, all right, I, if, if I think women need to have more women need to have more voice, I need to pour into more women and make them qualified. So that when the call of God and the timing of God comes together, they'll be prepared. Instead of just saying, give me my space, it can be an affirmative action thing. They need to actually take responsibility and get educated. You know, I'm, Jason, I'm going back for my master's. So I've written 12 books, and I said, okay, at 57, I'm going to go back for my master's because I'm watching what's happening in our world right now, and some of the women that have a lot of influence, they're really not uh, speaking the truth. And when things go viral, they're infecting people. Mm. They're not bringing transformation. And I, I just don't want to see that. And I don't, I want, I want truth in my inner parts. Right. No, no, I, I totally understand that. You, you were touching on the, the fact, um, and, and I love the fact that you've been spending a lot of time with younger people um, over this past year and that this book without rival is just really kind of blown up um, in speaking to that generation that's coming up. Um, one of the things that you'd mentioned to me when we were talking was that with the younger crowd, what you've kind of sensed is that they are um, have become a friend to the world versus a friend of the world, and yeah. and so there are a lot of yeah. a lot of pieces. They're kind of um, there. There's some confusion in the midst of that, and I think that's a very important conversation for our church leaders, our pastors, our ministry leaders to to be a part of, because we are we are trying to build into this generation that's coming up. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that friend to the world versus friend of the world? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's so clear in James, it says, when you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And so, you know, here's the thing that people are like, wait, wait, but, you know, I care about the lost and the broken and the disenfranchised and the homosexuals and the refugees. And, you know, so am I supposed to hate them? No, no, not at all. But here, here's the difference. We're supposed to be a friend, too. And a friend, too, means we have compassion. A friend with means we have 
sympathy. When I have sympathy, I'm under the system of it. When I have compassion, I'm on the outside looking in and say, hey, guess what? I understand what you're looking for, but you're looking in the wrong place for that. Um, you know, I was speaking at a conference, and I, I, I put it this way. I said, hey, we're called to be bedside to the world rather than in bed with the world. And when you can't see a difference between us and the world, then we're in bed with the world. And so how, how does, what does that even mean? Well, it, it means that we, we seek what the world seeks. You know, it's, and, I, and I loved, I, I'm trying to find out where I unpacked it, because I am great about quoting scriptures and awful about finding them. <laughs> but, you know, I talked about the whole dynamic of, you know, we, you know, we love the same things that they love. We go after the things, and it would, of course, be the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And the lust of the eye would be wanting everything you see, whether it's on Instagram, you know, oh, I want that, I want that, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to have that, whether it's wanting everything that somebody else has. And then the last is, interestingly enough, wanting to appear important in the, lo- in the eyes of other people. Mm. And I think we have a generation that wants to appear important, but if we go to the deeper root is, they actually know they're called to do something important. And, you know, Jason, we're probably close to the same age. I imagine you're, a, you're probably not a boomer. I don't know what you are. But, you know, here's the thing. We had to build something. Right now, people just have an opinion about something. Like, I have an opinion. Well, so what? Lots of people have an opinion. But we have to actually be able to build something. You've said you've been in the ministry for more than 20 years. My husband and I, I think we're coming up on 27 years in the ministry, which means, yeah, we've had a lot of opinions over the years. But at the end of the day, we tie our opinions to truth. And this world is passing away. And so we have to say we're not going to love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, interestingly enough, everybody thinks, no, I love everything in the world. God's saying, actually, actually, you shouldn't. You should love everyone, but not everything. And we have to be able to delineate between truth-telling and being haters, because mm. the world says that the Church is known for what she is against, and I hate that. Right. And that's what we've done we're against abortion, we're against, against same-sex marriage, against women in the pulpit, against, you know, whatever the against would be, all right? But Jesus was never known for being against anyone but the religious leaders. So what has happened is our reaction as leaders is like, oh my gosh, that was terrible, we hate being known for what we're against. Well, just before everything. We, we, we can't do that. We have to be for truth. And so what we have to do is live the truth in love so that we can speak the truth in love. So when we truly are people who love, we'll tell the truth. When we're truly people who love in our marriage, people who love in our ministries, people who love our family, it draws. It has such an irresistible quality to it because everybody is looking for love. But we can't compromise and call things love that are not love and then say it's truth. And I think the church is just going to have to settle. Did Jesus mean what he said? When he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Or is he just one of the best ways? Or is he just one of many ways? Because if he is just one of many ways, then he's a liar. And if he actually meant what he said, that I am the way, I'm the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, then the most loving thing we can do is tell people that. Because their eternity is in the balance. 
And so we just need to be people who, who be able to differentiate. Yeah, we do compassionate things. We just held a, a big golf tournament and, you know, it was giving away resources to Christians and helping Islamic refugees. So we're not going to only do loving things to Christians. We're going to help people who are refugees. And so we want to do both. We don't have to choose, but we can't lie. We have to, you know, we have to be truth tellers in the midst of all that. That's good. I, I think one of the things, one of the pushbacks that I've seen is, um, and you've mentioned this before about the legalism, and, and even in your book and, and in your study, you, you talk about, you know, a, a little bit of the legalism that the church was caught up in. And so now, now it seems like there's almost this pushback against that, where we don't want to be misconstrued as being overly legalistic. And yet you're saying there's this this place of both love and truth in the midst of that. Why do you think we struggle so much, you know, swinging the pendulum to one extreme or the other and, and struggle with finding that balance of truth and love? Well, I do, and, and this sounds like I'm being critical of millennials, but I'm, I'm really not. Um, I would say that a lot of them don't know the Word of God. They know catchphrases. They know amazing sermons but they haven't sat down and read the Bible for themselves. And so they've had a lot of other people interpret it for them. And, you know, there was something, and when I got saved, I got saved in the 80s, which was incredibly awkward time to become a Christian, but we were, uh, we were driven into the Word of God. People said, you need to read the Word. You know, so I read the Word, and I still love reading the Word. I never lose my awe of what the Word of God says. But that Word of God is what comes in and rightly divides. And so I think that this generation feels like you have to choose, and if they have to choose between truth and love, they're going to choose love. And I don't know where it came in that it had to be a choice. Maybe mm. it was, you know, the way it, was, way it was represented, you know, like, hey, you know, this is how we treat people, and this is what we do, you know. But the truth is, we can't go flip back the other way. You know, my husband used to travel and preach and say, hey, um, this would have been years back, maybe 20 years ago, I remember when President Clinton began to put homosexuals into the Army, and people were so upset. Oh, my gosh, we've got homosexuals in the Army now. And John said, you know what? If you're going to pull out the homosexuals, then you need to pull out the adulterers, you need to pull out the fornicators, you need to pull out the liars. And he said, we're not going to have an Army. You know, and so a lot of times people will be really hard on what they are not bound to. And so they're like, that's a worse one than what I've got. And that's what the church's mentality has been. But the right response to that isn't to say it's all good. You can't just hashtag love wins on everything and have it actually mean something. Because first of all, that's theologically incorrect. Love does not win. Love has already won. So we have to come in based on Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, and that's how we come in. But I think this generation saw the absolutes of legalism and responded with licentiousness and grace being some kind of cover over, you know, I, I, I mean, like, grace is our cover, mercy is our covering, grace is an empowerment. It does forgive all of our past, present, and future sins, but it doesn't license me to sin. And so mm -hmm. I think somehow we just blurred all of our contexts uh, I, I have this beautiful young girl that I, I mentor from afar. She lives out in L.A. She has such a heart for a lot of people in the industry, in entertainment industry. And she was telling me how she was, you know, ministering to a young girl, 
praying for her freedom and said she just felt like it wasn't really happening. And I, I said to her, you know, well, you know, the woman taken in adultery. She goes, that's what I told her. I told her, God does not condemn you. And I said, that's great. But there's a second half of that sentence. And she was like, what? And I said, go and sin no more. I said, because God doesn't condemn us, we say to people, now you have the power to go and sin no more, because the very next verse says, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me no longer walks in darkness, but has a light of life. And so we have only done that he doesn't condemn you, and we haven't said because he doesn't condemn you, you can walk in the light and go and sin no more. So I think we've separated some of those conversations that Jesus had and only taken part of it. It's, it's encouraging. I think as church leaders and as pastors, sometimes we struggle with changes in the world around us. And so we get we get fearful in a way and feel like, you know, we've got to somehow fix everything. And, and we lose that opportunity to really speak into the lives of those generations who are coming up because we feel like we have to fix things. Whereas I hear you're saying, no, we, we speak into them, we encourage them, we help them find their identity in Christ, we encourage them to dig deeply into Scripture, and we help them to see the beauty of Christ in both truth and love and how those can work together in their lives as they, you know, are friends to the world sharing the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. I love that. And so we have this generation that is fighting things. Jason, you and I never fought. Right. I didn't see everybody else's highlight reel every single day. I didn't go to bed saying, wait a minute, I, you know, this is how many followers I have. I lived with boundaries. This generation has none. Everybody is in their business, and if they're not in their business, they're throwing you know, their business on you, whether you want to see it or not. And so there's social media can be incredibly constructive or destructive. That's why I said I kind of post and go because even as a 57 year old woman, you know, it has a pull to it. And, and, you know, I love Theodore Roosevelt said comparison is a thief of joy. It's a thief of joy. You can be so happy until you're like, wait a minute. What, wait, wait, how did I get left out of that? What about this? What about that? And so you don't want to do that. You want to be in the presence of God, a God who is beyond compare, a God who is without rival. You know, that whole song, you have no rival, you have no equal. That is who our God is. And, you know, Brooke Fraser is like a beautiful, I, I just love her. And we had conversations around this, and that declaration of who he is becomes a revelation of who I am. And so I think that we have to position this generation in the presence of God. They have a revelation of who He is. Then they have a revelation of who they are in Him. Then they have a revelation of what's available to them in that Abrahamic covenant where God changes your name. And I, and I love, and I unpack this in the book, I have a brilliant friend who is a Messianic rabbi who is so smart. Whenever I have a question, I just call him, his name's Rabbi Brian Balecci, and I just call him, and he explained to me how God took a letter from his very own name when he changed Abram's name to Abraham and when he changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And God did that with us. He didn't change our name. He gave us the name that is above all names, but the name of Jesus. I mean, think about that. You and I have the name that is beyond compare, that name that is without rival, that every promise in Christ is yes and amen. And we are messing around with things when God is saying, you have a world to change. And so I just, I wanted to, to unpack that, and then I went from that to the purpose of rivals, because the truth is, 
I can say without rival all day long, but the truth is we have rivals. Mm. And even though I'm a daughter and you're a son without rival, there are rivals in our lives. And God will actually put rivals in our lives to bring up the best in us. And I have learned more from my enemies than I have from my friends. And I, I learn more about my weaknesses from my enemies. I learn what I don't want to do. And so there's rivals in life like fear and love. There's rivals in life that, you know, they come to, to test us, refine us, grow us, obstacles, prepare us for the next season. They're not things that are supposed to be run away from. And so doing all that, understanding the purpose of revival, rival, and then going from there to a life without rival, which is that life that we are called to live in Christ. And I was able to pull some of the most magnificent story from the first century Christian women of Thecla and Fatina, the woman at the well, just these beautiful stories of what happens when you have an encounter with Jesus and you realize the transformation. And, I, and I'm happy uh, to say this very clearly. Jason, I have stood on some of the most popular platforms in the, the world, but I didn't become a Christian to be a speaker. I became a Christian because I was a broken young girl, and God came into my life, and I had such a revelation that I was made for something more. And it, it not taking it from other people, but something more than I'd ever seen, something I'd never known. And that is what God wants to pull forth out of each and every one of us. No matter where life places us, He wants to transform us into our very best without rival image. Lisa, that's so good. I, I'm so thankful you had the opportunity to be with us and to, to share with our pastors and ministry leaders about this idea of, of God has no rival, and then what that means for us as we find our identity in Christ, um, that we are without rival as well, that we are all unique. And as pastors, as ministry leaders, I think that's important for us to remember because oftentimes we can get caught up in the trap of comparison as well. Um, comparing, you know, our ministry to another's ministry, our church to another church. Would you have something um, as we kind of close down to speak directly into that, which which some of our pastors might be wrestling with in comparison? Absolutely. Well, and and I think in all fairness, it's not right to compare the harvest of corn with the harvest of wheat. You are in totally different soil, and you can see somebody's highlight reel and go, "Oh my gosh, they're the most amazing." communicator on the face of the earth, but God has entrusted you with that field. You're in a particular field that requires your particular gifting. And I would just charge you, and I I get it, I get that comparison thing, I would just charge you to get into the presence of God and say, I believe that you have entrusted me with this field because you believe that what is on my life is a good fit for this area. And then just ask Him, say, I I believe, not I'm not going to study out a message, I believe I am a message. I believe my life being here, my family being here is a message, and I refuse to continue to compare myself with other ministers who I don't even know what their life looks like. And, and you know, love your wife well. Love your husband well if you're, you know, a female in ministry. Love your children well, because every single thing you do is going to flow out of that. It is not what you preach that it just comes out. It's what you live that comes out. So I would just charge you, you know, look at your private life. Take the time to let God go into those areas where the insecurities might be. Let Him speak life and hope and truth into that, and then minister out of that place. And, you know, one thing I've learned, I think people, congregations or whatever, they're not looking for leaders to be perfect. 
They're looking for them to be authentic. And when we share our weaknesses, when we share our struggles, and then lead from our position of strength, our people connect stronger with us than when we act like we are perfect or try to pretend we're somebody else. So find out that unique gifting on your life. Develop relationships with other people who are iron that sharpen your iron. I have people that will kill me if I do certain things, Jason. I have intentionally followed you know, my life up with relationships of people that will hold me accountable as well as cheer me on. So if pastors can feel really isolated, and when you feel really isolated, that comparison thing comes in to kill you. So get in relationships and, uh, and just you know, really let the Holy Spirit speak to you and preach the Word. Preach the Word. You don't have to be fancy. You have to be faithful. So preach the Word of God. Unpack First and Second Timothy for your church on a yearly basis, because these are the days that we're in, and the people need to hear the truth. Amen. Amen. Thank you for those words of encouragement and for those insights, Lisa. Certainly appreciate it. Um, before you go, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more about your book or the ministry, what's the best way to do that? You know, we have a website, Messenger International. And um, they can also connect through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, so my, my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook are all under Lisa Bevere, but our website is Messenger International. We have podcasts they can download for free, and we have you know devotions that we send out, so anything like that. And, of course, they can order our books through that website or through Amazon. Awesome, Lisa. Thank you so much. Again, I appreciate you sharing with our church leaders audience. We appreciate all that you and John are doing for the kingdom. Thank you for Thank your you. voice and for your passion. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android. And so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day, encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.